Hello and welcome to The Core. I am your host, Nick Mombello, and today's guest is my friend, Rudy Gonsior. I'd say welcome back, but honestly, it's been way too long. And since my last episode, my life has really changed quite a bit uh, for the better, but it's we've had many changes. My wife and I now have a son, our second son named Owen. So we now have two boys and I've decided to change careers a little bit to give myself and my family more sovereignty over what I do and what we do and where we live while also designing a life in which we're really proud of and excited to raise our boys in. So that's my update. Today's episode is with my man, Rudy. Uh, I met Rudy in a men's program last year and I was really, I was always really drawn to the energy that he brings to a conversation or a story that he's sharing. He's a genuine guy, honest, and as a man slash father, somebody that I really look up to. In our conversation today, Rudy shares some challenges he went through in the past decade and then how he worked through those challenges with the guidance of plant medicine and then through the Heroic Hearts Project. The Heroic Hearts Project is a nonprofit that connects military veterans struggling with trauma to psychedelic therapy options, including ayahuasca, psilocybin, ibogaine, and ketamine treatments in combination with professional coaching and integration on the tail end to really work through and integrate what you learned or went through in the ceremony into real life. And then the catalyst for today's conversation is actually the fact that I have become an ambassador for the, the Heroic Hearts Project and wanted to share a little bit of Rudy's story to help get the word out. Uh, I didn't know all of Rudy's story going into our conversation, but it was just great to talk to him and understand where he came from and then where he is today. Additionally, part of this is I want to share with the world some of the psychedelic therapy options that are available to the public today. In a lot of states, the or psychedelics are going through a decriminalization process for some, and then others are available by prescription from a doctor. And then you also have books like How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan that have come out, and we're really seeing some incredible results with anxiety, depression, and then even addiction uh, to really help bring people from where they are into a better and more fulfilled life in general. So I truly hope you enjoy this episode. I really enjoyed the conversation I had with Rudy. And then lastly, I'd like to give a shout out to my man, Blaze Curtis. He's been a longtime listener of the show and in the past couple months has really kept me accountable with episodes and things. So Sometimes when you go through a tough time, you need people around you to bring you up. And I wanted to say thank you, Blaze. I appreciate you. And then without further ado, here's my conversation with Rudy. Rudy, welcome to the show. I'm honored to have you here. This is my first podcast episode recording that I've done in a few months. And for you to be the first one back um, really excites me. You're somebody that I look up to as a man and a father, and I'm honored to have you here. So thank you. Thank you. I didn't know I was the first one since uh, you come back to the show. Yeah, <laughs> back on. at it. Yeah, I feel, feel honored. Thank you. So one thing and one theme that I've kind of liked exploring 
in the show is understanding who somebody was or was as a child and how that shaped them into the person that they are today. And I was wondering if you'd be able to share what your life was like as a child and what events or behaviors that you had or your environment helped shape you into who you are as Rudy today. Oh yeah, that's a good question. Um, Cause I think that's a lot of who we are, you know, when we, when we're growing up kind of shapes who we eventually become was kind of obvious, but um, yeah, I guess that, that begs the question as to who I am today, which <laughs> gosh, I, I, there's lots of different versions of myself. Um, but I guess for, for people that don't really know me, um, who, who is Rudy? Uh, who's Rudy? That's a good question. Um, I guess most people kind of know me um, in some different facets. Like I kind of always think of myself as like nowadays, like these different roles that I play. It's kind of like, uh, say, like characters or, or costumes almost sometimes. Um, so people mostly know me through like my work or through as like a parent uh, and close close friend relations. Um, so my work that I do now. Uh, so I am a uh, director of training at a company called uh, Ridgeline. So oh, <laughs> free plug right there. Um, so Ridgeline uh, is a company that uh, I started in a couple years ago. Gosh, I guess we're going on like five years now. Um, so me and a couple other friends uh, kind of started this company. Uh, and we, our main focus is training uh, military, uh, LD, OGA, and also we do open enrollment as well, kind of centered around uh, firearms and tactics. Um, so essentially we teach um, guys that are used to do our job, uh, how to do our job uh, and how to do it kind of better. Um, before starting this company, uh, I was an active duty uh, Green Beret. So I spent, uh, oh boy, I guess I'm coming up on almost 19 years uh, within the special forces community. So um yeah, collectively, like we've, uh, as instructors and stuff, we've been around the block a couple of times. So we've learned some really important things. And so the goal of like this company was really about kind of being able to give back and build, uh, those guys up. Um, you know, we learned a lot of hard lessons over, you know, the last 20 years of GWAT. Uh, and it's kind of interesting because like institutionally, there always isn't a lot of interest in, retaining that and it's kind of inefficient the bureaucracy that exists that is the uh united states military which you kind of you, you know what it's like it's the same thing anywhere um and so our goal is really to be able to retain like a lot of that that hard-earned knowledge uh and then also be able to kind of give back uh and give back in the most efficient way uh, that we possibly can so a lot of our our coursework is based off of our personal experiences, what's kind of needed, you know, now, and then also condensing that down, you know, into, you know, five to 10 day courses um, for some of our professional uh, guys that are coming through uh, and really just condense all that as much as we can. And I always kind of joke, it's like trying to cram like, you know, 10 pounds of shit into a Dixie cup, which is essentially <laughs> what it is. Um, but it gives guys, you know, access to things that, um, you know, we learned you know, essentially the hard way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it also, it's a great opportunity because it just, the facility that we have, uh, I mean, we built everything from the ground up. It was very much, uh, we knew what we wanted to do and we needed to do it. We needed a place to actually do it. And so that's been this long saga over the last five years, 
Um, so that's what I do now. And like I said, my background in uh, special operations before that in the Army, uh, then even goes further back, I actually started in the Marine Corps. Um, and so that's that's kind of what I've been doing like as an adult. So the question, I guess, going to come back to the center, how on earth did I get on this path? Um, I don't know. I, I sometimes ask myself this like fairly frequently more often than now. Like I, I'm just kind of in amazement that I'm just like, wow, like I'm living like my childhood dreams, like in a lot of ways. Um, and when I go back to my childhood, like that was very similar to what I do now. I was actually just joking. Um, I was talking with a partner of mine about like we're talking, there's, I think I shared a picture and it was, me with like a rocket launcher in Afghanistan and I'm just like realizing that I'm like I was also building rocket launchers like when I was you know <laughs> a kid <laughs> like, I was doing building rocket launchers making bombs and stuff blowing things up um my parents were not very excited about that aspect of my life um but uh yeah how did how did I get on this path I mean I guess ultimately there was always just something like just deep down that like was like this this desire to walk this warrior path and um it's really hard to say like where that kind of comes from like for me it's been a journey to realize that that even was a path you know it wasn't mm. until recently um and i know we've had some conversations uh this past year kind of like about that you know like discovering but I think I like to use the term Dharma um, because I feel like that kind of encompasses like this, this life purpose and this directive. Um, but honestly, it's something that I struggled with for a long time, like really owning that. Um, but now in the end of you know, hindsight, like I look back and I'm just like, oh, wow, like I've always been like very close to like this line uh, that I've been trying to pursue. And that for me, like it goes back like, I can remember this experience that I had you know, when I was about probably five years old uh, in which I was really kind of first confronted like with this desire to basically use like force for the purpose of justice. Um, and it was, it's a long story how I get back to there. I connected this recently within like the last few years. Um, but it was, for me, it was this moment watching, um, I don't know if anybody remembers, like, like the Disney version of like Robin Hood, one with like the foxes and stuff. And yeah, that was, I was watching this at my grandparents' house and I was probably about five years old. And this concept of like, you know, the use of, of force to bring about like purpose and justice. <clears throat> and it just kind of flipped like this switch in me that's just always been there. And it's always been kind of this constant theme um, that's gone along with a lot of other stuff in my life, you know, this desire for this curiosity, this exploration, um, but very much with like this purpose, uh, to, to walk that path. Um, and that's where it started. And it's been, like I said, the theme of like everything like, I did as a kid. And I also had the benefit of having, you know, <clears throat> friends, mentors, family that, um, had walked similar paths of that. Uh, kind of like was able to encourage me along the way. Like my grandfather is probably like one of my biggest influences. Um, he was just, <laughs> to use the word lightly, I mean, one of the most radical individuals that I know, even okay. today. 
Uh, I mean, you're talking about a guy who, I mean, he ran away from home, like, in when he was probably, let's see, I guess maybe like 14 or like 15, um, you know, quit school at like eighth grade, uh, ended up, you know, joining the army, uh, right at the end of like World War II, uh, underage, like trying to get to the fight, mm-hmm. uh, you know, ended up, you know, getting like tasked into, uh, what would have been one of the, uh, the Ranger regiments that they were standing up for, uh, the invasion of Japan. Uh, obviously the war ended before he had a chance to, to get into that. And then he just goes on to live like this incredible life, um, mainly as like a salvager. So, you know, he would just have this mind that could just like build and like put things into like life and, you know, just like built airplanes, helicopters, submarines, like stuff that like, honestly, like if there wasn't actual documentation and like proof that these things actually occurred, I'd be like, you're making this up. But like, (laughs) you like did like all these things and just this incredible life, but also like this good life. I'm just like pursuing like his heart and passion, regardless of, you know, his education. You know, he never graduated, you know, anything mm-hmm. beyond eighth grade. And like the things that he did was just incredible. Um, and he just really kind of lived this life, just implementing like this, this core desire that he had to, to express it and to live it. <clears throat> and I guess that really made me start listening to my own, you know, and it was difficult for me, like in the kind of early, like the teen years and stuff, like, I think we all kind of go through these phases of like trying to figure out like what we were, uh, what we wanted to be. Uh, and for me, it definitely after nine 11, um, mm-hmm. like it was, became like this laser focus for me. Um, and that's eventually what led me into, um, the military. But, and, uh, I don't know if that answers the question. But, yeah. No, that's great. One thing that comes to mind, so I'm in a military transition group program that I'm going through right now. And we had an exercise where they paired us up with somebody else. And they said, in three minutes, take turns in three minutes, explain your life story. And I go through the path of, I grew up in Massachusetts. I went to high school. I played hockey and lacrosse. I went to the Coast Guard Academy and very, all very, accomplishment-based explanations of what I did in life. And then they brought us all back into the main Zoom group room and said, okay, you're going right back to the same person in three minutes, explain your life, but you can't mention anything you mentioned in the previous three minutes. And at first I was like, how do you do that? I just explained my entire life story. There's nothing else. But in doing that, you had to go a little deeper and understand or explain something that you didn't explain prior. And what came to me at least was my martial arts practice. I didn't explain that in the first one. So I fed off of that thread. And what I learned in my martial arts practice was teachers come to you that might not be your parents. As, and as parents, you want to think you're the sole provider for your kid's education and your kid's life and development and who they're going to be when they grow up. But my instructor in my martial arts practice taught me a lot of life lessons that my parents didn't, or not that they couldn't teach me them, but it was a different environment. It was a different 
setting where I was able to learn discipline and integrity and hard work and also being able to connect to who I am as a person inside as opposed to all the other environments outside. And same with your grandfather. Your grandfather taught you life lessons that your parents could not. Um, and I took this, he's an 05 in the Navy, and I just kind of took him on a little story about how I was able to connect to myself on my own. And then I brought that to fly fishing in Astoria, Oregon, where that was my next martial arts practice equivalent when I was older. And you just find certain life lessons from different people or different activities that you do. And they all come to you at a certain time in life when I think it's most important and it's most valuable for you at that given day, time, or experience in general. That's a really good exercise. I'm like already kind of like mentally rehearsed in my my head because I'm just like, what would I what would I do? And I think it, it definitely for me raises some interesting things like acknowledgement. You talked about like accomplishments and one of the things that definitely, I guess, kind of pulled me towards like the military too is realizing that I understand the currency. Like there's a social currency that of accomplishment that exists within um, like the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it makes it really easy to, to be successful. You know, like I knew what to do to be successful. And so I kind of being fluent in that, you know, it's very much something that I grew up with. When I look at my parents and like our family, um, when it comes to like being able to express success and accomplishment, like that system kind of allowed me to do that. Mm-hmm. And it's a path that's already been written. It's already been forged. You, there are people before you that have done exactly what you're trying to do and you know how to, how to succeed in that given role or path or career that you are striving for. Yeah. Makes it, makes it somewhat safe. Um, which is, which is interesting because that leads me pretty much like where I'm at now, which is not being, not being safe. Um, yeah. Kind of this theme, like if I was, to to do the exercise that you're we're describing um what's driven me i guess is like this learning to to be to be unsafe unsafe is the wrong word learning to be dangerous mm-hmm. um, in a healthy in a healthy way as healthy as i could and this there's this repetitive pattern i guess if i look at my life and it is pushing into these spaces of being like uncomfortable. Um, and it's in that space of doing things that make us uncomfortable that it gives us space to grow. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a certain magic that happens in there. And it's hard because a lot of times it's forcing you to be confronted with yourself. Um, you know, when we look at, you know, special forces like selection, it's incredibly uncomfortable to, uh, period. And, you know, a lot of it isn't, it isn't crazy, you know, uh, for like army, you know, green berets and stuff. Like when you go through selection, there's nobody there. Nobody's yelling at you, you know, like you're, you're just given like these super vague like tasks and assignments. You're not told, you know, how far you're going to go. You're not told how long you have to get there. 
It's just, you know, put this rock on, move from this point to this point. And you spend a lot of your time, like actually like alone. And why I think that's so hard is because it, it forces you to look in the mirror. Like it's a looking mm -hmm. glass and it's, just, it's incredibly uncomfortable. You start becoming like face to face with these parts of yourself that you're like, man, I'm not as good. Like it's like this other version of me was saying. That. <laughs> And you start to become like, you're kind of like your own worst enemy in some ways. Um, and when I look at, you know, my life now, I, I can look back and I realize there's this pattern that I have. And it's also closely tied with like trauma. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'll, I'll use 9-11 because it is this incredible like crossroads. And I don't know if I can actually avoid that. But like for me, 9-11, like I never realized until about probably three years ago, like, uh, when I was actually, I was sat down into this, uh, group, uh, this veteran, like group therapy session and starting out, it was literally like, just, you know, a quick kind of like blurb of like, what was your background like growing up? Mm -hmm. How did you the military? And, you know, I kind of gave a brief synopsis of my childhood. And then I, I said, I joined the military because of nine 11. And then, you know, Doc looks at me and he's just like, yeah, but why? And I was like, and it's kind of repeated the same thing. He's like, no, like, what was it that happened from 9-11? And I started telling a story that I've never shared with anybody up until that point um, about watching, you know, watching people jump from the towers, you know, being, I think I was 16 years old at the time. And you know, watching people, you know, holding hands, jumping and how much like that disturbed me. I think I made it like maybe a sentence into that. And like, I just broke down sure. uh, and I just I realized that I'm like, this is a trauma that like I've never processed, but it's also like one of the driving factors. Like I, I had this awareness at that moment that like one of the reasons I joined was because that was a looking glass moment. I wanted that to never occur again, but I also felt like I wasn't enough to stop that. And so it drove me to the Marine Corps. And then mm -hmm. I'm in the Marine Corps. I had like these crazy experiences, you know, in Iraq and I realized I'm not enough for this. And so I'm like, all right, we well, need to be better. We're going to go special forces. So I ended up going you know, to MARSOC and then I ended up going to uh, getting selected in the army uh, going to army special forces. And mm. it's this pattern of like these looking glass moments where you're coming face to face with a part of yourself that isn't, you know, maybe as grounded as you thought it was like in what your ego portrayed you to be to yourself. And there's healthy ways to do that. And there's also not so healthy ways. And for me, like there's definitely, a lot of those decisions weren't particularly healthy because um, they also weren't, there wasn't always a lot of consciousness to that and actually caused a lot of issues. Um, you know, in my marriage at the time, like I was making decisions that were, were driven by this and they were so profound and strong that like, but like I also wasn't sharing what was going on inside. I didn't have this ability. And so it would create incredible, like, uh, disharmony, like in communication where I, like, I was just doing stuff. Like I remember when I, when I went to the army, like it was like this unilateral decision that I made almost at the last moment and, you know, it caused a, a ton of pain and a ton of stress. 
Um, but it's not to say that the, the process of like that suffering isn't useful. It is, but I didn't know how to do it consciously until <laughs> a little bit later. In life. But, sure. And that kind of leads us perfectly into heroic hearts project that I wanted to discuss. I, if anyone doesn't know what heroic hearts project is, it's a nonprofit that connects veterans struggling with trauma to psychedelic therapies, whether it's ayahuasca, psilocybin, ketamine. Um, and you're an ambassador for them. I'm, I recently became an ambassador for them. And not only for veteran support, but I think for the general population of the world, plant medicines really have a value that isn't known enough. And I think it's important to try and share that with the world because it can help a lot of people that are struggling with trauma, uh, addiction, anxiety, depression. I was wondering if you'd be able to share your experience with Heroic Hearts Project. How, how did that even, how did you get to that point? I, I don't know the, I don't know the story behind that. Um, God. Um, and, yeah. What was the process, I guess? So the, the, the process of, I guess, how I ended up uh, becoming an ambassador for Heroic Hearts um, was my personal journey, uh, like as I kind of progressed, right? So we talk about just now, like the stories, um, the, the versions of ourselves that we make, like the ego. You know, a lot of people think of like the ego as this horrible thing uh, that needs to be controlled and stuff. And it definitely does need to be balanced. Uh, the, the ego is, is simply just a version of the self that we we present like out to the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes it gets, it gets pretty wild, you know, like your ego gets like too big in a way and it's, it gets unhealthy and it's not balanced against everything. Um, and a lot of it revolves, I think around storytelling, um, how we, the ego is essentially the, the actor that, that plays out the story that's inside of us. And we tell stories a lot, you know, like as human beings, it's like one of the coolest things I honestly think about like human beings is what we do is we create the abstract and we were able to share it back and forth, whether we're talking about you know, music or movies mm -hmm. or books, like all these things are, they're stories, they're our stories. And I think one of the big things that happens to like a lot of us, especially as we experience trauma um, and, you know, trauma isn't, unique to you know veterans uh either you know it's one thing that's really has hit home for me is like realizing that trauma it happens to all of us in various mm -hmm. degrees um you know it's not specific to vocation or you know geography like it can happen to any of us and what a lot of times that trauma that occurs is i think that the story that we're telling ourselves and what we're faced with um, starts to come into conflict and it can be so significant uh, in these traumatic events that it creates essentially like a split between storylines. And it's really like confusing. Um, and for me, that's pretty much what happened. Um, there's also like a lot of physiological things that are also happening, but like from the mental perspective, from like ex the experience as the person riding this crazy train, well, that's kind of how I like to like kind of sum it up. Um, so some of us, you know, as we move into experiences, some of us have like good coping mechanisms and, and some of us don't. And especially if we have early trauma, uh, it kind of like in many ways can prep you to kind of have a continuation of that pattern. Mm -hmm. uh, 
I think that's why sometimes like you have people experiencing things that like other people experience and they're like, Oh man, I'm totally, I'm good with this. And other people are like, I'm not good with this. And so when we have this separation of stories and this, this conflict, this contrast, um, it leads to like a lot of internal uh, turmoil. And for me, that's what happened. Um, it was kind of an ongoing thing. You know, when I look back now from just, the military side, I can go directly back to 9-11 and these, these series of traumatic events. Um, and it does start to begin to contrast with, I guess, like who I am in certain degrees and kind of lose our way. And for me, like I knew like that these things were kind of happening. Um, but I also like I didn't really have any way to, to, to access these things. Like they were happening in parts of my mind that like I just couldn't get to and I knew like I could see the symptoms and stuff like even after my first deployment there was a lot of things that like happened that I was just like I don't know how to process this thing this doesn't match up with any of the stories that I've ever been told myself or told anybody else has told me and I don't know what to do with this I'm just going to bury it um and it's not not because I didn't want to face it I just didn't know how to like sure. trying to open a bottle without a bottle opener and um <laughs> So like there, those things sit and they will sit. And over time, you know, that begins to kind of leak um, out. Like there's a certain, I guess, unhealthy corruption to having carried that much stuff. And you start to see it both. There's a lot of different ways that it can manifest. Um, for me, it came out in some of the very classical, like, I mean, your classic, like Hollywood, like moments of having like, crazy freaking dreams and stuff and it would they would tend to like come up from time to time and i'm like all right we can deal with that uh other ways it starts to uh show itself physically um like this constant stress that you experience like as uh trauma like it will show up in the body uh, there's actually an awesome book um the body keeps the score and mm -hmm. probably a lot of people are familiar with it um, I recently read it earlier this year. Um, I've probably read it like two or three times since. Um, but the body does have very specific reactions to it as well. And I look back now and I'm just like, oh man, like <laughs> all the signs are there, but it's like, I was yeah. your uh, But ultimately, it kind of boiled up um, in the most interesting way. Um, basically, my partner, you know, a wife of 15 years. Um, ended up like leaving me and um, there was there was this moment of discord um, that kind of occurred for me and it just it brought me to a point of just being like really emotionally raw uh, and I didn't really understand you know what was going on what was um, you know kind of driving like her decisions and um, it left me in a very very like emotionally raw place and to a point of, um, of, of suicide. Um, and it was something that honestly I've been struggling with for several years up to that point. Um, like their depression, um, was starting to become kind of intense. You know, for me, it was kind of like these waves, you know, I'd be deep down in like these really kind of dark places for a little while. And I'd come back up like, I'm good. I don't need yeah. help. Um, then I dipped back, back down again and, you know, I, I did at one point reach out to um, the VA. Um, so I left active duty in 2015. 
um, and was kind of going through this process and it was very, it was not really a great way to kind of go about it, but I knew enough to know that I was like, this is not going to like end very well. Uh, I don't really have anything to deal with this. And honestly, the, the VA that I went to, um, when I went in and for my initial consultation, it was like a 15 minute conversation and they already wanted to put me on like three different medications. And for me, that was kind of like a no go. Like I, I was like that. I've had friends that have kind of walked this path before and seen like the effects of like some of these medications. I'm like, that's, that's just covering up like these things. I'm like, I knew I needed to get to these things that were deep down inside and just covering like the symptoms, you know, with medication. I'm like, I don't want to live like in this dulled world for the rest of my life. I need to access to these things. And, mm. and the VA just wasn't able to like really provide me for that. And it's not to say that I'm against like pharmaceuticals at all. Like they definitely serve an incredible purpose. Um, but ultimately I think that we have to be able to get down inside. Um, and so this uh, was a very traumatic event occurred for me. And uh, when I, when I, when I finally realized that, you know, my marriage was over um, that's where I went and it was this very dark place. And, uh, you know, at the time, um, you know, my former um, and my daughter, uh, they just left for a trip to go to Europe. Um, and I was kind of at home and I had my son who I was supposed to drop off uh, at uh, my parents' house like the next morning. And I ended up just literally drinking myself like into this blackout. Um, and I woke up the next morning and literally, I think the only reason I, I didn't kill myself that morning was because I had still had my son. And I was just like, man, that would be like really messed up. And so I was like, well, I got to bring him over because I was supposed to get on an airplane myself to fly out to Death Valley, and do like a big month long exercise out there. Uh, so I was like, I got dressed and, you know, I brought him over and I was like, well, I already got pants on, so I might as well just go to the airport. And so, um, I ended up out in like Death Valley and, you know, as I'm traveling on the plane and getting out there, I'm just really playing everything back. And I'm just like, wow, that's, uh, that was pretty rough. And so now I'm out in Death Valley. This is like freaking July. And it was the first time, you know, I'm not allowed to drink while I'm out there. So I'm going through like this detox and like, you know, 110 degree weather. And also like going through like these, these exercises they are all like force on force exercises. If anybody's been out to NTC, you kind of have had this experience. They have basically what's called sandbox and it's this big military exercise, you know, thousands of soldiers and Marines and they square off against each other, you know, laser tag sort of stuff. And that's, it's basically LARPing. Um, and so um, I'm out there and this is 2000, I guess 2018. This is when this is happening. And um, so I'm, uh, with a, uh, a special forces ODA and you know, we're getting, you know, signed, uh, these missions and stuff. And a lot of the equipment that we're using for like the trucks and stuff is kind of older vehicles. And, um, I remember at one point, I'm, um, you know, it's probably a weekend of this detox for me. And I, I hopped down in the turret of this older model Humvee to, to man, uh, the, the Mark 19. And, uh, it honestly like hopping down into like, this turret was like, it was 
a waking flashback to me and my first deployment. And it like all this stuff that had just kind of been coming up, uh, that I've been keeping down and, you know, like, I'm just like, I'm like, I don't know what to do with this. Like, it's all just coming back and we're like driving across the desert. I'm like crying. I'm like, yeah, I got, I got like, <laughs> my eyes guys. Like, <laughs> and, uh, it's just, I'm also now at this point as exercise begins, I'm not sleeping. I got like an hour of sleep, like every night. And I just descend into like this weird world of like not being able to tell what is real, what isn't. Cause like, we're also a lot of these scenarios that are playing out are like ones that I've already lived through. But I also have like this weird, this weird moment of like clarity where I'm like, I can relive like all these things. I can relive them the way I want to. And so I just go like full like legends of the fallout here, like LARPing. And uh, I think my team was like, kind of like, what the, what the hell's going on with Rudy? But I mean, like at one point, I, you know, I think I like killed like 40, like op four. Uh, I destroyed like three tanks. I shot down a freaking helicopter, like just running around with like a 50 cal. And like, they're just like, just keep doing you, man. Like whatever's going on up there in the turret, like carry on. <laughs> And uh, for me, it was incredibly like therapeutic um, until I was administratively removed from the exercise. Um, it's a long story, but basically, I get pulled in and I get killed off, uh, which I shouldn't have been. I was just like, it's an intentional like killing off. And so I get back and talk with my commander, and he's just like, "Look, man, like so far, you accounted for like ninety six percent of like your team's kills, like." we can't grade the rest of the team with you here. So we're just going to take you out of the scenario so we can grade them. <laughs> and I was just like, really like pissed at first. You know, I yeah. get sent back to tent city and like, I sleep for like 16, 18 hours and there's nobody there. It's just me and the freaking tent in the desert. And I start just reflecting and I'm just like, man, I'm like, Rudy, your life is pretty fucked up right now. <laughs> like, look at what's everything that's just happened. And I just, at that moment, I made like this commitment to myself that I'm like, you can't control anything else. You know, like you can't control you know, who is doing what to you. The only thing you can do is take care of yourself. And you haven't been like, that's mm -hmm. why all this is happening. And yeah. I was like, okay, we're going to take care of ourselves. And I ended up talking with a, a good friend of mine, uh, Kaylin, uh, a former uh, Marine Corps scout sniper. Uh, and he had been a good friend and mentor of mine. And uh, I talked to him one night and we talked for probably like two hours. And it was mostly me just like talking, being like, this is my crazy fucked up life. And I don't know what to do. And uh, he just listened quietly and kind of got to the, the end. And he's just like, all right, man, like, I want to, I want to tell you something. It's going to sound a little crazy. Just hear me out. So he proceeds to tell me, about like six months before uh, he ended up going to Peru and participating in a traditional ayahuasca ceremony. And I was like, I don't even, you know, I'm not sure. Like, I kind of had heard like what ayahuasca was. I knew it was like psychedelics. And I was just like, let me get this right. So like you went to the jungle, you did psychedelics with like some little brown dudes and like <laughs> not <even> good. <laughs> and I'm like, you're right. That is crazy. And because mind you, at this point in my life, I've never 
other than like alcohol, I've never experienced like any altered states. I've never smoked weed. I've never done anything like, mm. and so this is just like, I'm like, man, that's, that's, that's pretty whack. And, uh, but afterwards that conversation, I was like, it just planted like this seed in my head. And I was like, that, it's just crazy enough. It might actually work. And I'm like, I don't know what else to do. And so I reached out, did some research and, uh, I found heroic carts. Um, so, Heroic Hearts Project is um, this nonprofit that's kind of founded by uh, a dude named Jesse Gould. So he's a former uh, ranger. So that gave me like, I'm like, all right, like this, mm-hmm. this dude is at least walked some of this path. And so I called him and so we got talking and just kind of gave him my story. And, you know, I went through kind of the screening program. Uh, so it was a, a medical screening program, a psych screening program. And he's like, hey, I think like this could be a, like a good fit for you. And He's like, I don't have any spots right now. You know, we wait on, um, you know, kind of like sponsors. So what they do is they, they kind of go out, they vet uh, different sites and shamans and stuff. Uh, then they help like link uh, veterans um, who are suitable for the program to go to these, um, these ceremonies. And so a lot of times they might help with like a plane ticket or like the cost of the experience. Um, and that's all, you know, through donations. And so it's like, you're going to probably have to wait for a little while. Uh, so I ended up waiting a couple months and he called me back and he's like, Hey, uh, I got a spot in Costa Rica with like I think eight other veterans. Do you want to go? I was like, all right, let's do this. You know, <laughs> at that point, you know, I, I had been kind of reentered, uh, kind of doing some talk therapy and stuff, but it was still even like wanting and knowing that I needed to do stuff. It was still really difficult to kind of like, get around like this, I said like this block. Um, mm. and, uh, so I ended up, you know, kind of going down there, a healthy dose of, of, uh, they call it like speculation. Um, <laughs> uh, like I was just like, I remember being on like the first night, like sitting, uh, in ceremony getting ready to drink this medicine and just being like, what the hell am I doing here? Like, did I really just like get on a plane and like fly down here? Like what fucking world am I living? <laughs> um, I was like, you know, I'm like, I'm all in. Like, let's freaking do this. And um, so I s- sat for four different ceremonies while I was there. And it was, um, it was interesting, you know, coming into that, you know, I remember meeting everybody kind of in the hotel lobby there at first before we went out. And uh, so it was myself. Uh, there was another guy from 82nd Airborne. Uh, there was uh, another Marine there. Uh, There's two dudes uh, from Canadian uh, Special Forces and two uh, Aust- or, uh, British uh, SAS dudes that were there as well. And um, so, you know, we all meet together and it's all, you know, everybody's kind of sniffing around, trying to figure out like who's who, who's blocking us. It's definitely like a community of freaking mediators and there's obviously like this tension like everybody's like i don't know if this is the right place <laughs> and then like the staff uh, the facilitators are all they're they got a pretty crunchy vibe to them and i'm just like i'm like how the hell is this ever gonna work and um honestly the first night so the way that the ceremonies are run um you know there's a lot of different ways that ayahuasca can be used and so they use um, different shaman, uh, down at this facility at Solterra. And, um, so they kind of use a traditional method of, um, 
ceremonies that happen during the evening. So basically sun goes down, ceremony starts. And uh, for people who aren't really familiar with ayahuasca, like the quick breakdown. Uh, so ayahuasca is obviously a psychedelic as we've been kind of explaining. So it's uh, it's uh, DMT that is uh, ingested orally. So sometimes people smoke DMT and it creates like this uh, incredible journey that usually lasts 15, 20 minutes. Um, and the DMT is used from the ayahuasca, you know, traditionally it's made into this brew. And so you have these two parts. Um, so one part is the DMT itself and the other part is the MUA inhibitor. So it allows it to cross the blood brain barrier by shutting down some of those enzymes in your stomach. Um, and so it induces a, a journey that can be anywhere from, you know, four, in some cases up to 12 hours. And, uh, it's in like this space that, um, that things begin to occur and, the the best way that i would i would kind of like describe is how the shamans kind of like talk to me about it um in that their traditional belief is that you know each of us has what they refer to as song lines and so these song lines are kind of like these threads that run through our lives and sometimes like when stuff happens when things get like really intense uh they can come untied or broken and you kind of lose your way and so what they do in the ceremonies, so there's uh, in this particular modality of ayahuasca, there's a lot of singing. They're, they're singing back your, your song lines to you. So you remember kind of like who you are, you remember how to get back on, back on track. Um, and what's, so that's like kind of what's happening in the space in the ceremony. Um, chemically what's happening, again, layman's terms um, is, there's certain parts of your brain that with a lot of psychedelics, whether you're looking at psilocybin or DMT, like a lot of these uh, psychedelics, what's happening is it's shutting down for your default mode network. So it shuts down certain parts of your brain and it gives you access kind of around like some of these parts that become, you know, kind of either damaged physically through traumatic brain injuries uh, or parts, you know, the, the traumatized parts of like your neurons uh, that are firing, it shuts that stuff down. And so what you experience with some of this stuff is you can begin to work through things that have happened from a different perspective um, by shutting down the normal routes. It kind of allows you to work around all that um, in a very, um, sometimes very intense ways. Um, each experience is different for everybody, but that's in the simplest layman terms, that's what's happening in this space. And uh, it's the, what you're exposed to is this profound self-healing. Um, and for me, like this first ceremony that I sat in, like just the first ceremony, the next morning, the seeing the change that like occurred, not just in myself, but like in all the other veterans that like I went with, it was, it was incredible. I've never seen anything like it or anything since. Um, and this process, you know, of the week as, you know, things went on, I mean, it's, freaking hard you know and like this isn't to say like you know i lost it's like a silver bullet like all like this is work like <laughs> yeah it's probably one of the most exhausting experiences that i've ever had you know there's there was times where i'm like i don't know if i can do another ceremony like this is i think after like my second ceremony like i didn't talk for like almost 24 hours like i just like everything that i experienced was just so much like i just I didn't even have words for it. And I just 
or sitting in silence. And, um, but this, what's occurring is like, it's opening you up to these parts of yourself that naturally we kind of are the way that the mind works to protect ourselves sometimes from that trauma is to kind of shut stuff down. And that's for like the immediate survival, but eventually you have to find some way back to that. And so a lot of this stuff comes rushing back and you know what's ironic about this is for me i thought like a lot of the stuff that i would be going back to would be like stuff from the war uh but the reality was actually i did go to those places but i actually went way further back uh into some stuff that like happened in my early childhood mm-hmm. and that just led to the understanding of like this path how i got to where i was and there was that was incredibly healing to be like okay like this just mapping out like everything yeah. how I here um and so it was a incredible experience and even coming back from this um you know like that's one of the things that i t- try to tell people a lot you know like it's not just like a go and like you're cured like it opens you to it to be able to do the work and coming back from that and beginning this process of reintegrating you know like having this experience mm-hmm. but like what does that mean for you in real life? Like, guess anybody can go to the jungle trip balls, but like, what do you do with everything? Right. And for me, that was honestly the most work was just now being open, being like, okay, now we can, we can, we can do this. And then began to learn kind of different ways to kind of tackle like some of the stuff that I've just been open to. Um, and it's really much, very much shaped how, I live my life now. And I think one of the best quotes that I've heard on this topic, I was talking to one of the shamans before I left and Mm -hmm. he said, you know, your life is now your ceremony, which means basically like everything you experience here, like you have to go live this. And it's been difficult, but it's also been like really wonderful, like to, to take these lessons and be like, okay, yeah. how How does this apply to me? Like, as these versions of myself that actually exist. Uh, and I began to really see that, like, particularly as a father, that was probably one of the first things that I really kind of began to address. And also like, as like a husband and, you know, even though like my marriage was coming to an end, um, it began to shape realizing I had like this power to shape how that process goes. And that led to what, his probably one of the most beautiful experiences that I've ever had, um, which was my, my divorce, um, from my wife, my former wife. And for a lot of people, you know, that's a very, I mean, it's a brutal experience and Mm -hmm. it it was every bit that for me, but I also had learned like through this process with ayahuasca, like how to live through these things. And, it has been, like I said, one of the most beautiful experiences that I've been able to have. It's been incredibly difficult. You know, it's brought up so much stuff for me, but being able to be present for those things, I've, I've learned so much from it. Yeah. And it's, it's been incredible, you know, as learning what it means to be a partner, learning what it means to be a father, you know, and really it's a looking glass moment. Again, it's another form of a looking glass uh, that I had been experiencing this pattern beforehand, but all of a sudden now it came in a totally unexpected uh, package to it. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate a little bit on how it affected you being a father and how 
what you were able to reintegrate and become a better father from your experience with ayahuasca? Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, for one, I mean, there's so many different little things, but one of the first things I really took away from it, um, is realizing like how connected I am like to my children, mm-hmm. uh, and letting go of that. Um, like I remember at one point, um, like in one of my, one of my, my ceremonies and my, my journeys that I had, I had both my children at one and like in each arm. And I remember this, like from when they were kids, you know, like little babies, like I could hold head <laughs> one feet would be down here yeah. in this ceremony. I had both of them, one in each hand. And I, I just, I was this loving them so much, but I also realized that like, they're not me. And like, at some point I'm going to have to let go of who they are. And I'm going to have to let go of this, this idea that they are just miniature versions of me, you know, cause they're growing to their own person. And ultimately that someday, like I'm going to die and I'm not going to be there for them. And it began to kind of, as I was integrating this, realizing how much of myself that I put into them. And that this is also one of the main points of contention that sometimes I have is like, when I'm responding like to certain things with them, it's because like I'm almost reliving part of my childhood and I'm trying to fix my childhood by like fixing them. And it's, it can be really frustrating because I'm just like, I'm like, you just need to do this. Like we just had the whole interest (laughs) morning of like, you know, my daughter, I like got up and, you know, she had had this plan for, you know, like her morning breakfast and it didn't work out that way. And she's kind of, you know, having meltdown. She's 13. That's allowed to happen. And, but my response was like, just fix this, like, just suck this up, like, just do this. And I realized like, this is, this is this talk track that I've been telling myself for years, you know, it's just like just coming up with all the answers. And I realized that like, that's not what she actually needed, like in that moment. Um, and that I wasn't actually recognizing what she needed. She didn't need me to tell her how to fix it. She just wanted to recognize that like what she needed wasn't there. And it, it's really hard because like, I'm so emotionally like invested, like in this experience of like raising yeah. this child, like in that these shortcomings that I see in them are actually shortcomings that I see in myself. Um, I very much see it like with my son who's younger, he's 10 um and he has you know a lot of difficulty like focusing he has this wonderfully creative mind but like boy like if you know he's <laughs> like he's a laser beam on one thing but like if something shining catches like he's gone sure i'm like i realized this this was you know early in my my integration process like just realizing i'm like the reason i get so upset is because that's me like i hate mm-hmm. this person of me and I'm not disciplined. Like as that was like a really hard thing watching my children and their undisciplinedness and then being confronted with the fact that like, Rudy, like you're don't act, you're not actually disciplined either. And I'm like, yeah. holy shit. I'm like, you know, because I think I'm like, oh, I'm fucking, I'm goddamn green beret. Like I'm fucking disciplined. And I'm like, no, you're not. Like you've just you've had the benefit of like this structure and like that's been good for you but like when it comes down to it like it's something you struggle with so yeah. it's like me like lashing out like you know like i can fix you 
but like here I am over here and like not even acknowledging it all until then. Um, so those have been like really powerful ways of, of realizing. One uh, thought process that I've came across is our role as a parent is to render ourselves obsolete in the future. So basically because hopefully, and we, we wish this, but hopefully we outsurvive our children and they have to be able to survive on their own without us. So, or even when they become 18, they're going to leave the house and go do their thing, whether it's college or whatever it is that they do. Our role or our job is to allow them to survive and do what they need to do on their own without us. Um, and it's hard because you don't want to be obsolete. You don't want to be not useful for your children, but that's a goal that you have to kind of strive towards for them to be their own sovereign being on their own. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a balancing act for sure. That has a lot to do with boundaries. Yeah. yeah. I mean, even now, you know, I'm 30, 36, 36, going on 37, uh, and this is still something I deal with my parents is like healthy boundaries. Of like, <laughs> I'm like, all right. Cause it's like, we build like these patterns. And I think sometimes we really, there's a, you know, this balance between growth and like safety and boundaries are incredibly useful for, you know, keeping us safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like they're good. Um, but like those boundaries also shift, you know, especially as parents, like we have to recognize that, those boundaries are going to shift and the box that we put our kids in, you know, that relationship is good. Maybe, maybe it's a good, but even if it is good, like it's like the perfect thing, like they're going to grow out of it. Mm-hmm. It's no longer going to be useful for the same thing. I realized that, you know, looking back at my relationship with my parents now, you know, and it was one of the things that, you know, we used to cause a lot of tension, you know, especially in my marriage where like whenever I went back home, I would like fall back into this box of rules of the relationship that I had like with my parents. And it didn't really make sense to me like back then because I was just like, I don't know like why this is keeps happening, but I keep reverting back to the boundaries that used to be in place. Mm-hmm. And then I realized I'm like, oh, like that's just because that's what we've always known and what we've always done, but there's new boundaries. So how do we make new boundaries? And mm-hmm. as a parent now, realizing that I can kind of gradually move like the needle, you know, as we progress. So it's not like yeah. a jump, like jar has been kind of helpful. Um, but also the, the other half of that too is realizing that like, you know, kids do have boundaries, you know, like there are things that like you can't, expect, <laughs> can't always expect, you know, them to do, you know, the things that, that you maybe unconsciously expect them to do. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something I'm very guilty of, you know, like I remember, you know, my, my pre, you know, plant medicine experiences, I used to hold my kids to an incredibly tight standard. Um, and, you know, like it would just be freaking horrible. Cause I'd be like, you know, trying to get them like to the bus, like in the morning to go to school. And for me, I'm just like, I'm like fucking timelines. I'm like, we got, <laughs> we got to get to HLZ, you know, plus or minus 30 seconds because if the bird's not there, I mean, the whole mission is just scratched. But like, you know, like they're fourth graders, they're fourth and third graders. 
Like that's, that's not applicable to this. And like, you can't expect them. And it's unreasonable to like place that boundary so far out and they can't fill it. Yeah. And, yeah. and like we were talking about before with my son potty training right now, the expectation is to go into the, the toilet that's in the bathroom, but he sees the dogs going outside in the yard. So that's part of his expectation as well. And he knocks on the door and wants to go to the bathroom outside. So it's like, you have to be realistic in the expectations that you hold to them, but they're going to do what they think is right or what they f- have experience in their life as well to be their expectations. So not that I'm mad that he's peeing in the yard like the dogs do, but it's just an interesting way to look at things, how your environment also shapes expectations for your kids. While at the same time, we try to shape our expectations of them through our lens of parenting, because that's how we think it's supposed to happen. Not that kids are supposed to pee in the yard, but it's the, it's the phase we're in right now. So, yeah, no, it's, uh, that brings up a really good point of expectations. And like, that's one of the things I kind of learned through my journeys with ayahuasca was expectations versus like intentions. Um, mm-hmm. It's not to say that like you should not ever have expectations because there are certain circumstances that do require hard lines to be met. <clears throat> um, but a lot of times when we navigate kind of the more, I don't even know what you would describe. When we navigate life, which is so, it's such a gray area sometimes. Unless you get into some very specific aspects of life, like a much of our experience, like it's really hard to nail down. And so when you start applying like expectations to things, it leads to disappointment most of the time. Um, even if like we achieve them, uh, this is something, you know, I experienced, uh, you know, very much like in my military career, uh, being very focused, like on like expectations, like goals. And, you know, like I would meet like a lot of these goals and like, they never like brought me like happiness. Like uh, for me, like one was, um, so I, I spent, um, a bunch of time like kind of like active and then I ended up moving to uh special skills detachment and I taught uh the special forces type of course for like three years and my one of my my goals and expectations I set for myself day one arriving there uh I had a list of like three goals one of them was uh to go to the U.S. Army International Cyber Comp and win and so in 2014 I did exactly that. Me and my partner went and we won uh, international. And I remember walking up on that stage and just feeling so freaking empty, like inside. Like I've like done this freaking thing and it was a ton of work and it was like all the right answers. But I was like, why does this not feel fulfilling to me? Like, and it's just like this goal. And I think a lot of times we get sucked into fulfilling an expectation and whether it's met or even if we meet it and like, or it goes unmet, like it sets us up for kind of like falling, right? Because that's not how life works. It's not like you just get a place and you're like, I'm good. Like life continues to move on. And so was one of the things I began to like kind of understand with plant medicine, uh, kind of careful about expectations uh, and to focus heavily on intentions and so like 
but for a lot of people like expectations and intentions are kind of like a weird thing you know they're like that's like the same thing and i would say a good example of like intentions versus expectations so expectations would be like going to the gym because you want to look like a dude on a magazine versus i'm going to the gym because i want to live and be able to move through this life better mm-hmm. and those are two different things you're at the gym but there's two different driving facts um and for me like that was like a, a big part of like expectations like in all the aspects of my life like try not to set expectations um or seeing if I can replace as many as my expectations as I can with like a stated intention. Like sure. what am I, what am I actually desiring here? And uh, that's led to a very fulfilling like existence <laughs> in that regards. And I feel like it's also made me more successful in a lot of ways. Sure. So then I, I have two questions for you uh, to kind of finalize the conversation, but it ties into intentions and, falling in love with the process of something as opposed to just the final result. Is there anything that you do on a day-to-day basis to be your best self or to improve say 1% from where you were yesterday uh, that you'd try and do? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there's, I guess there's lots of little things, um, but I would try to start like every day, uh, I like, this is something I learned, like when we were going through, uh, the conscious man, uh, that whole process gave me a lot of freaking tools. Uh, but one of them was like the daily, like morning routine. Yeah. Um, and I used to freaking, I used to hate it. Right. Cause I remember who was it? It was like McRaven or somebody like a couple of years back was like, you know, make your bed every morning. And I was like, <laughs> like that's, that's lame. Yeah. Um, begrudgingly i have to say there's a truth to this like how you start your day kind of like tends to carry out like through the rest of your day mm-hmm. i've literally had days where i like i get up and i'm like this is not going right and i'll hop back in bed and i'll like literally play out like me waking back up again like real quick just like i need a reset here um but like how we start our day in that morning routine can kind of set the tone for like everything else is going on mm-hmm. so my mornings i like to do like three things so like one is reading like i like to read like a little something uh so i've been reading uh the uh the daily stoic i think mm-hmm. by ryan, ryan holiday i think ryan holiday yeah so i just yeah. started that um and that's been like really good like because it's just a little blurb kind of gives me something to think about uh and then usually i'll meditate you know just do like a quick like 10 minute like little meditation just kind of see where everything's at and then i like to do some sort of like movement some sort of exercise Mm -hmm. Uh, it might be you know i might lift i might run i might just do some yoga or something like just something to kind of like activate my body this kind of begins to kind of set this tone throughout the day and again like the expectations like i try not to like really set like a lot of expectations you know like i just i set those like goals like I'm just going to read like this. Sometimes I read more. Sometimes I'm, I read it and I'm just like, I don't know what the hell is going on. I don't know what they're talking about. Um, or sometimes like I'll write and I'll just like write one page. And if nothing else, I'll just write like gratitudes, things that I'm grateful for. Uh, sometimes I'll write 10 pages. Sometimes it'll be, you know, three sentences. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but it's going to just kind of do like a little something. And the goal isn't necessarily to have, you know, a good track record. Um, I guess all those things combined, the number one thing is just like, just being kind to yourself. You know, it's, it's really easy to kind of like beat yourself up, like about stuff. And honestly, that was something that for me was a struggle for like years. And it took, even after like my journeys with ayahuasca, you know, it was still a thing that I struggled with a lot, you know, like having like some of these routines, you know, like working out uh, Mm -hmm. period where, you know, I didn't work out for probably like two years, like prior to like my ayahuasca and, and, you know, even, you know, being operational, like I relied a lot on like in this old man strength and and been blessed with (laughs) some pretty good genetics. And so I got away with it, but it like bugged me because I was like, man, I'm just like, I know I should work out. I know I'd be a better operator for doing it. Like it would, mm-hmm. it would fit my teammates for if I was better, you know, my 60%, it might be good enough, but like, I know I'm not living up to my, my own standards and, but I couldn't shake it. Like I just literally couldn't bring myself to like go run or like go lift. And it took a long time, like, really sitting with that and I finally realized one day it just hit me like a lightning bolt like the reason you're telling yourself that you need to go do this is because you're fucking scared like everything that you've done like your whole like professional career especially like as it revolves around physical fitness has been driven out of this fear of what happens if you don't you know whether it's you fail a PT test whatever you fail you don't get your 90% or like whatever or that because of your lack of physicality, you know, somebody's going to get like hurt, you're going to put somebody in danger. I was realizing that everything that drove me to run and work out was fueled off of like this fear. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's horrible. Like, I mean, yeah, like fear, fear and anger can be an incredible like source of fuel, but it's not sustainable. Like when I look back and I'm like, Oh my God, you know, 17 years of my professional life has been, fueled by like this fear and anger what happens if i don't mm-hmm. and all of a sudden i was able to make like this mental switch you're like all right you're no longer going to run or you're going to lift because you're scared you're gonna do it because you love yourself and it sounds pretty fucking lame and like kind of like hokey dokey but like it literally like it just unlocked like this mental block that i had and I began like this process again of like moving because like I love the existence that I have, like, and I want to be able to like move through it in a way that's like my fullest without setting, you know, the expectations. Now, again, expectations, they do, they're helpful. Like it's like, all right, you know, I'm going to do like, you know, six, six reps in like this circuit, you know, go like, that's good. good expectation. But the intention is that driving force. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, holding yourself to that you know again i like to read i like to meditate i like to move and do that stuff not because you're scared of what's going to happen but just because you want to love yourself that's uh for me like that's been like a really a pretty incredible game changer yeah so then honestly that ties into the the quote i wanted to kind of leave us with for the day and it's from the way of the superior man which we've both read and we both, we both really enjoyed. Uh, and he says, own your fear and lean into it just beyond it in every aspect of your life starting now. Um, and I, I like the, 
last part of it, the starting now aspect, because in a way it resets everything to begin now and to begin now. There is no looking back and getting upset at yourself for not doing it in the past. Forget all of that and do it from right now and move forward. Um, and honestly, just like you working out, me getting back into the swing of doing the podcast uh, interviews and getting episodes out, I wasn't doing it because there was an aspect of fear for me and stepping back into putting myself out there, stepping back into reaching out to people and saying, hey, would you be able to do a podcast interview with me? I would love to have a conversation with you. It takes a little bit of courage to do that, but also you have to own the fear that comes with that and work through it and then move forward in life. So if you have any thoughts on that, I'd love to hear. Yeah. I mean, I love that book. Like every time I read yeah. that, there's always something that stands out to me, but like I, I too, like, as you were saying that quote, like the now, like that always stands out to me. Mm -hmm. And, it's because like, that's where we live, you know? And I have a really good friend, Corey, who once uh, told me, he's, he's a funny character. Uh, he, he's, he's from Maine here originally. So he always says stuff with like a wicked Maine accent. <laughs> One day he told me, he's, uh, some sort of joke. I forget the context, but he said, Rudy, if you got one foot in yesterday and one foot in tomorrow, you got nothing but your ass in today. And like, that's very much like the nowness of, existing and it's hard to be now right because it's always distracting like i find myself because i'm a planner i like love to plan i'll plan my whole life out if i could um so tomorrow is always a thing but i'm also an analyzer so i love looking back at what happened and it's very easy to come out of like the now um mm -hmm. that's like where that's where life happens is right now and being being now being here and now is like this mantra that you hear over and over again. Um, but it's true. It's like this gift. It doesn't matter what happens. You're not obligated to be the person you were five minutes ago, five hours ago, five years ago, right? Like you can choose to be whoever you want now and you can move towards whoever you want to be now. And remembering that is, is hard because it requires a certain degree of, of vulnerability, right? Like, because you got to recognize like where you are in that, like, that moment and that vulnerability can be like really hard, but it's also a practice as you yeah. begin to become more vulnerable with yourself, it becomes easier. And for me, it's hard. Like even now it, it's hard for me to be vulnerable with myself and just be like, okay, like that happened, but you're here now. You can push that aside and like, just go from right here. Right. So yeah, that's, <laughs> I definitely buy with that like I, a lot. Yeah, I love it. Well, Rudy, I can't thank you enough. Thank you for coming on the show. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Uh, thank you, man. It's been I love I just love these good conversations. <laughs> <laughs>
Thanks for being here. I enjoy the process of podcasting and having conversations with people and then sharing those conversations with you. So if you enjoyed it, I hope you join me next time. Thank you. I appreciate you and have a great day.